we've all got carried away with all these abstractions and philosophical speculations, but there's very little, like, you know, like basic stuff, like I am Humja, I, I just released a book. You know, like, I mean, someone once asked me after a film screener, Shire Radicals, are you acting? And I didn't know how to answer that question. Sometimes I don't even introduce myself as an artist or writer. I say, I am Hamdra Hassan, commander-in-chief of the global international revolutionary movement to overthrow extrovert supremacy, and I'm on a never-ending world tour until that form of oppression is overthrown. And here I am in Barcelona. And that is literally my life. So for the last six years, I usually get a call from maybe an oppressed introvert who has a place within a festival or institution or university and they invite me to a particular part of the world, whether that's New York or Ljubljana or the Philippines. And that's how I live my life for the last six years. So I am on a never-ending world tour and I am committed to the death and abolition of extrovert supremacy. Hamja Ashan is a British artist, writer, curator, and fanzine enthusiast. He is known for his raw critique of dominant culture and power structures, particularly in the context of cultural representation and identity. As a neurodivergent Muslim, his work addresses the intersectionality of race, religion, and politics shedding light on the ways in which dominant narratives perpetuate marginalization, inequality, and the repression of civil liberties. His 2017 book, Shy Radicals, explores the idea of shyness as a form of resistance, encouraging readers to reconsider the role of introversion in political engagement. This down-to-earth, anti-systemic manifesto is a multifaceted compendium of modes and registers full of satire and personal anecdotes. It reframes social justice movements through the lens of introspection, deep thinking, and empathy as mechanisms against what he calls extrovert supremacism. In this podcast, we talk to Hamja Ashan about his traumatic participation in Documenta 15, about the language of shy radicals, about neurodiversity and Islamophobia, and about the fictional utopian Shy People's Republic of Ashburgistan. But also about fried chicken. Mostly about fried chicken, really. The whole book came out of um, feeling people treaded on my toes or had their boots on me, and therefore developing a vocabulary and navigation to overthrow and usurp that. And it was within the London activist scene that you met people who would say, hey, Hamja, why are you being so sheepish? And then I'd answer back to them, I'd say, why are you being such an extrovert supremacist? And that developed organically from the experience of subjugation and marginalisation and being belittled. There's several Anglophone orientations of the language of empowerment some of that comes from what I was taught at school so Jonathan Swift's uh, Modest Proposal which is a satirical text about the famine 
in Ireland and it's sort of used as a, so there's a proposal to like eat babies in a colonized Ireland, the first colony, first European colony. Um, and another part comes from uh, the Afro-American tradition uh, of resistance. So um, the Black Panthers and both the tropes of both these movements have been used for other generations. So, for example, Jonathan Swift has been used for the war on terror. So there's contemporary philosophers who use Jonathan Swift's uh, text to write a modest proposal for torture during the George Bush era, which I lived through and which oppressed me. And similarly with the Black Panthers, the tropes of the Black Panthers, you have the Dalit Panthers in India who um, resist against the caste system and you have indigenous people using Red Panthers. So you have this vocabulary that translates across movements and across generations but we're talking about the same thing which is about speaking truth to power and demanding a world of equality and liberation My family originate from West Bengal in India, uh, which is the federal state that's seen as quite red. Uh, it has had a democratically elected communist government. Um, and uh, they came to England in the 1960s. Um, I have dual nationality with Bangladesh. So both my parents were born be before partition of India and Pakistan. My dad was born in 1939. And my mum was born in the 40s. And... Um, there's the way these post-colonial nations keep reshaping what their national identity means. I, I actually don't relate very much to contemporary India, especially under the uh, BJP, Modi and Hindavata, sort of sort of neoliberal, quasi-fascist uh, state. Um, I think my parents feel sad. We're from the Muslim minority within uh, India originally. Uh, and then uh, a lot of my family lived in what was then East Pakistan for 24 years. And then in 1971, uh, it becomes Bangladesh. And Bangladesh as a nation is always changing its national identity every five years, where there's like changing the names of the airports, whether that's an Islamic name or a ethnically uh, Bengali name. Um, and it never really settles. And it's funny when I come here in Barcelona and I look at the name of the groceries and the kebab shops and the convenience stores, and they have some of the same names. So you have Shah Jalal Groceries. Uh, Shah Jalal is the Islamic patron saint of uh, Bengal who brought Islam there. Um, you have Awami, which is a name for the um, nationalist um, liberation or civil war, depending on your politics. And and those narratives of of liberation or civil war depending on your politics are things I've never quite uh, fully settled within me um, so within the book you see a reference to partition uh, of India Pakistan I've also uh, worked extensively on a project called Redo Pakistan um, in Karachi Lahore and um, Islamabad because my former curatorial partner was uh, Fatima Hussein artist based it, uh, in Lahore um, at the National College of Arts and so we spent a number of years developing this nomadic newspaper project which we travelled across uh, New York, London and parts of South Asia um, 
rethinking those narrations, and it's still a very hot trend, you know, um, topic. You know, my auntie and my cousin could shout at each other at a, a dinner table, like, um, and there's still not acknowledgement of the um, genocide or violence. So Winston Churchill, who's still considered an icon in Britain, is... Um, it starved four million of my people to death uh, in 1943 and the Bengal famine. There's no monument or statue or Hollywood biopic or anything. It's not even common knowledge, even amongst British Bengalis. And yeah, there's the sort of trajectory of famine people. So you have the Irish famine uh, where the British killed one in eight of the population, over a million people. Um, and you see that sort of starvation used as a weapon of war in Yemen and currently as we speak in Gaza. Although I feel there's a sort of London uh, mishmash of identity, which is more um, what I relate to, which is embodied in the contemporary notion of the halal fried chicken shop, which have become a sort of code word for race and class and the subaltern. And whether you're in Barcelona or Brussels or Rotterdam or London, it's the same class and race uh, demographic you see in these places. It's the, the sort of hub of black and brown people. Uh, just recently, during the current uh, genocidal onslaught on Gaza, you've actually seen Palestine flags and uh, almost BDS motions and pictures of Nelson Mandela in the chicken shops in my local area in London. They've developed this sort of critical consciousness as well uh, during the present moment. It's funny because... Um, since the book came out for six years, people would come up to me at random art events and go, oh, are you Hamza who wrote Shy Radicals? Uh, now people, since the Documenta 15 project and how Lyle Fried Chicken, uh, which would be the base of my second book called Radical Chicken, which I'm currently writing, go like, oh, are you Hamza the uh, fried chicken man? <laughs> Including within uh, the institution of... Uh, this modern art museum in Barcelona, I've met people who know the work from uh, Documenta. I even invented a halal fried chicken chain called Asperger's Midnight Wings, which was a 24-hour um, fried chicken chain based on uh, neurodiversity. Uh, Asperger stands this utopic state that I made up. Uh, it's like a federation state. I've written a draft constitution of this state, which is a homeland um, and liberation hub for um, neurodivergent, um, autistic, quiet, awkward people uh, where they can feel at home. When my uh, brother, who was incarcerated for a number of years without trial uh, under the war on terror um, for marginal association with a series of uh, websites in the 90s about Bosnia, Chechnya and uh, Afghanistan, he was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome whilst in prison and I became his main support um, as his younger brother and someone he shared a bunk bed with and also when he was in solitary confinement in, in the US. So you're 23 hours a day in a room the size of a bathroom with no human contact apart from strip searches and lawyer visits and it's where half of suicides take place in the US. This is how I connected to like um, the Black Panther movement as well because many of them were held in such conditions. So you had um, the Angola Three who were held for over 40 years in a solitary confinement. I met many of these former prisoners. Um, anyway, going back to Asperger's syndrome. Um, so I read a lot of peer literature about Asperger's syndrome. So there was one 
fanzine written by the National Autistic Society in Britain uh, called Asperger's United. And this this phrase that came kept coming up is that autistic people felt like they were second-class citizens. So I thought, how can you transform citizenship and the nation uh, to make people feel like second-class citizens into first? Or like as if the whole model of the state was built for them. Um, we never get away from this idea of how to um, create a more ideal state. In the 1980s, um, all these British uh, indie bands, such as The Smiths, um, Primal Scream, and who have become quite iconic uh, in the 90s, they, they saw the dole, so being on the welfare state and living on the welfare state as some very essential uh, centrality to their idea of creativity and uh, keeping uh, their music alive and um, this form of, um, in the Smiths' case, melancholic music alive. Um, I'm sorry for what Morrissey's turned into now. <laughs> Which, but, um, and so you're still there, again, having a relationship between a type of state and a type of uh, way of being and staying alive. Um, and recently, I was a big supporter of Jeremy Corbyn, um, who... Um, led a sort of progressive, socialist, um, anti-war movement. And within his Labour Party, there was a branch called Neurodivergent Labour, which was uh, led by autistic trade unions. And they were thinking how to transform the workplace via motions and policy. And um, it's funny, so some of the um, laws that I've drafted in my draft constitution of Aspergistan uh, has been sort of almost adopted as sort of like measures and policy or, or something similar. I've also read the Aspergistan draft constitution at strikes. So I was invited to the UCU, which is the Union for University Lecturers, and they, instead of having a very rowdy, um, tub-thumping, militant strike, they did, a, they did a poetry and book reading. And uh, I read the draft constitution for employment within... Um, that uh, movement but the whole notion of like boom and bust and wall street um hyper um finance capital i feel is tied in with a particular economy of like bragging and um ostentatiousness and how that's tied up with wider forms of ecocide and destruction so i think when we talk about this term i've coined extrovert supremacy it's not just another additive. Like we have many social movements, you know, like LGBTQI movements, women's movements. Um, and then people add things like speciesism, ableism. And it's not an additive of these um, isms because fundamentally the whole structure of politics is about listening and representing and speaking. So by overthrowing extrovert supremacy, you're overthrowing the entire system and structure of politics itself. Uh, I first came across the figure of Temple Grandin, who's quoted in this uh, fictional film season uh, that I propose in the book, um, in the Guangzhou Biennial in 2010, where I was placed under the International Curators course um, and the the design biennial, which I thought was one of the best things I've seen in my life, had her system of like classifying animals. And also at the same time, I felt really alienated in the Guangzhou biennial and 
South Korea generally had adopted this aspect of American corporate hyperculture and almost like even accelerated it further. Like everything from the launch of the biennial, which was very heavily invested of American capital, to like K pop, which is like the amalgamation of the worst aspects of like American um, MTV culture. Um, just not feeling totally uh, alien and distant and the whole culture of parties and openings and private views even art forum and these cerebral uh, fat um, critical art magazines have party news I don't enjoy this I don't even understand I always felt that's not why I got into art practice and the whole notion of accessibility within these institutions doesn't acknowledge that when they think of accessibility in say an institution like Tate Modern they bring in skateboards and DJs and that was everything I didn't relate to as a teenager or as a so-called young person or whatever this demographic is this notion of the autistic celebrity um, that Temple Grandin embodies there's other um, people such as uh, Greta Thunberg who um, became quite big after um, but she really reinvented this notion of, of what public speaking is and what uh, the public platform is. So she could go on a daytime chat show like Trevor Noah and not make eye contact with the host for the entire duration. And that's very transformative. I also applaud her bravery in Germany where she's been vilified and demonised for showing solidarity with the Palestinians, um, which was... I noticed it was the same journalists who uh, persecuted the documenter artists. But there's sort of official autistic icons and there's unofficial. And that's what I uh, uncover when I, um, as a zine collector. So I've been collecting zines since the early 90s and the Shire Radicals movement comes out of uh, my engagement with zine culture. I made zines since yeah, 1994 was my first zine as a teenager at school. Um, and there's a sort of neurodivergent zine culture too. And so you have this official autistic icon. So, for example, Sesame Street had its first uh, autistic character called Julia. And Julia, um, she can't take sensory overload. And uh, Elmo says to Julia, oh, Julia just does things in a Julia type of way. And she's sort of very uh, cute. Um, but... If you think of other Sesame Street characters, there's a character called Count, who's a vampire who just counts everything. It's like, so in this fanzine, they identify him as the first autistic character. And there's this subtext and reading and identification uh, with uh, marginal characters and that doesn't need official or centralised endorsement in any way or large PR campaigns. And there's also a retrospective um, identification with autistic icons. So as I tore the book, which I've been doing for six years in maybe a dozen different countries, I sort of identify precursors within the history of colonialism and, I guess, leftist history. So one of the first major revolts against European empire and colonialism was in Ireland, and the figure who led that was Patrick Pierce in the 1916 Easter Rising. And he is, if retrospectively, 
um, identified as autistic. Um, he was also very awkward, yet he read the most like brave, militant um, revolt against empire that sparked off um, similar revolts in um, amongst Afro Americans in Harlem or like in uh, Bengal, uh, where my family originate. And there's other figures. Uh, my brother had a lawyer called Gareth Pierce. Gareth Pierce is a legendary human rights lawyer in Britain. She represented um, the Guantanamo detainees, but earlier generations such as um, in the Irish again. So there were many uh, injustices in the 70s, such as the Guildford Four, and this was made into a film called In the Name of the Father with uh, Emma Thompson, the actress playing Gareth Pierce very well, and Daniel Day-Lewis. It's still the iconic film. Uh, has a beautiful Sinead O'Connor soundtrack. And she speaks like a mouse. But in the context of, like, media hysteria and very violent headlines, speaking like a mouse is closer to the truth as you'll get. So my mode of writing is based on the premise that everything can be taken as a form of fiction. And every day we come across formats of writing, whether that's a menu or a piece of law or a press release. And all those formats can be rewritten as fiction. So the book Share Radical is written in multiple different formats, um, such as the oral history. There's a fictional uh, public service, which is a helpline, for introverts, there's a charity call, there's a oral history, there's fictional interviews, there's a draft constitution, there's a reparations moment. So I don't understand why people primarily write in two formats. One is the 19th century novel with conventional narrative and characters you're supposed to believe. And secondly, the long-form semi-academic essay, which is what most corporate leftist publishers publish, such as Verso in Britain, and 500-word opinion pieces for newspapers. To me, the, the modes of register in both these formats is very, very limited. The modes of uh, sincerity, uh, authenticity, performativity. Why do we assume dryness to be objective? which is the primary mode of like academic writing. Um, to me, a comedian has more objectivity and nails the truth more than an academic paper with Harvard-style referencing. I also found forms of law uh, fascinating, especially during the war on terror. So there was a sort of evil poetics coming from the George Bush administration where they developed these forms of evil euphemism. So uh, torture and drowning someone was called um, waterboarding or kidnapping someone was called extraordinary rendition. So law itself, which is the ultimate form of dry uh, cerebral writing, became itself a form of fiction or something to be questioned. And at the same time, I actually found... Uh, law quite poetic, especially the language of constitutions. Uh, whatever you think of uh, Cuba as a state, its constitution is absolutely beautiful. 
piece of writing that um, talks about history of resistance from slavery, um, making homelands. Um, I also read the Soviet Union's various constitutions. So I'm, I was born in the 80s, so the history of actual existing socialism or whatever that international struggle could be called almost has a sense of fiction to it. And I was watching the collapse of the Berlin Wall at the same time as Star Wars. And I also spent a lot of time in the former Yugoslavia in Slovenia where uh, I conducted or rewrote the book as a live referendum during the 2019 Ljubljana Biennial where people could actually vote to be part of this fictional state of Aspergistan. And that was also restaged in uh, Poland. And noticing the uh, Yugo nostalgia in the younger generations who were in their 20s, so they weren't even born during the time of Yugoslavia, but they were communicating with Bosnians and Croatians and wanting decent housing and uh, more solidarity with Palestine and... Uh, accountability for imperial wars and there's also the non-aligned movement has become very fashionable in contemporary art and they relate that there was a that a lot there was a big exhibition called southern constellations uh in slovenia at the time when i was there even though they left the non-aligned movement and this almost mythic history so they used to have huge rallies for patrice lumumba the leader of the congo who was assassinated uh, by Belgium and the CIA. And that that's almost like fictional, mythical, that could happen today. So as someone who's a minority within uh, Britain, there's certain forms you come across. Since uh, the 1980s, you had the Ken Livingstone's GLC. They, these were like socialist movements which were trying to create cultural forms that the way the state could improve race equality and there were quite typical things that they would have so they'd have like oral history projects uh, recounting a lived experience so I was involved in some of these oral history projects or you'd also have many film seasons there's a wonderful uh, African uh, curator called June Gavi, uh, Gaviani uh, based in London who does the Pan-African uh, Film Institute and she documents all this history through the 80s and 70s. So seeing the sort of foundation of these um, movements and uh, how to write them. And then um, I also um, developed a close relationship to um, Guy Guyana and Caribbean um, radical bookshops. Uh, there's a one called New Beacon Books, which is a legendary bookshop. And, th and then you get the demand for reparations. So... Um, it's been in, invested in these um, various uh, social movements and then the types of writing in which they express themselves. Um, I'm also inspired by... Um, I read the Black Panther's anthology of writing, uh, inspired by the artist Emery Douglas, um, so that language and tropes of militancy. But they also took many writing forms, from song lyrics to uh, demands... And one part of the book is a non-verbal part. So if you look up hashtag shy power on Instagram, you'll see lots of people curling their fist in front of their mouth. Um, so you have the curled fist, which is like solidarity, and the curled fist thrust in the air, which is like black power. The so curling the fist in front of the mouth was a bit like a cough, was like shy power. 
Um, and people have appropriated this nonverbal vocabulary across the world. So you have people in Sao Paulo, Brazil, who are fans of the book, and they integrated this shy power salute into um, the struggle against uh, Bolsonaro. And they did this hashtag for a Bolsonaro with the shy power. And I have a fan in Sao Paulo who uh, rewrote the Antifa flag, but put the shy power symbol in it. And as the book was in translating Italian, um, a woman actually tra uh, tattooed the shy power symbol to her arm, which is real fandom. And I never predicted this global appeal of the book as I wrote it in South London as a Muslim minority in Britain, where I grew up. Yet there's people in like Beijing uh, who re-narrate uh, the book through their childhood and the, the, the architecture of that particular city. Uh, another nice thing that happens is there's autonomous trail of artworks, collectives, writing, choreography, sound pieces that are inspired by the book that I discover all the time. So um, there was a collective in the University of Manchester called Academics Against Networking, and it was generally uh, academics who related to the book, who inspired by concepts in the book. There's been uh, choreography by Japanese dancers based on some of the non-verbal lexicons um, and movements uh, in the book. There's been um, some robots that were wandering around Brussels at the time of COVID that was inspired by texts uh, in the book. And I discover more and more. So I've ceased to curate, commission, edit, but this sort of, as I tour and as a book circulates, it generates its own um, artwork trail and uh, institution building trail and um, organisational trail. Even in some arts institutions, uh, like when I went to Liverpool Biennial, they had like introvert hours and extrovert hours. I mean, I'm for the abolition of extrovert supremacy itself, but so I'm not with this type of liberalism. But you saw this influence the book had institutionally over this last six years um if that's a work of fiction um in an exhibition in uh, Ljubljana Biennial 2021 so because I won the grand prize the previous um biennial you get a solo exhibition the next one I did a world map where I mapped the whole Shire Radicals trail around the world so there were Ivy League universities where it was first introduced on the curriculum um, in neurodiversity, there were uh, has a little cult following like Mexico City, um, and there's fictional locations in the book. Um, that line between fiction and reality is not something I can clearly delineate, and you'll see that in the documentary. I don't know if the book is a revenge fantasy or just me. <laughs> The key influences on the book um, is me reading a lot of prison writing uh, from the era of uh, what's called COINTELPRO. Um, so I would read uh, Duribia bin Wahad, who was imprisoned under the COINTELPRO period. COINTELPRO was a period um, in the 60s and 70s where the American CIA-led uh, um, repression campaigns against um, various liberation movements, Latin American liberation movements, black liberation movements, leftist liberation movements, solidarity with uh, people under imperialism in Latin America. Um, 
And yeah, I, I read a lot of prison writing uh, rather than read what is official critical theory and official what's fashionable in art world. It's like Deleuze babble, I call it. Um, Donna Haraway, Mark Fisher, whatever's trendy and fashionable, blah, 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 which I don't regard as forms of thinking. To me, they're dead, ossified. Um, it's almost like trendy passwords. Um, there's very little actual organic relationship to movements or life or bite in any of these things. So there's a disillusionment with the official forms of art theory. So I just made w words up because there's sort of the power of slang and the power of like play in words and the power of puns. I was also influenced a lot by anti-psychiatry. Um, there's a book called Use Your Illness as a Weapon by the Socialist Patients Collective, which was actually a serious uh, 1960s uh, um, anti-psychiatry movement. But they use concepts like the doctor class, and then you can see the notion of the extrovert class in my book. And they use the Viet Cong's vocabulary to talk about psychiatry and medicine and the health system and its collusion with, like, capitalist extraction and um, exploitation and I yeah I read a lot of law uh, constitutions I, I read a lot of as I said there's all these formats of writing which are very interesting um, I mean I even went to Philadelphia to the US Constitution Center and you saw how the whole city treated the Constitution as one big sculptural form so you have the bells where the constitution was first declared. And then you have the re-adoptation of these constitutions by, um, say, the Haitian Revolution, which adopts uh, the French Revolution's constitution. Um, I was also interested in the Ottoman Empire. Um, a lot of disenfranchised Muslim minorities, they watch all these Turkish soap operas, like Erturol, I think there's like a billion people. And they, they view it in the same way Afro-Americans view like Wakanda. I'm sure it's far more contested within Turkey itself and there's actors who instrumentalize these things. But for someone living under occupation in Kashmir, they love all this Ottoman warrior stuff. So also there's this idea within um, Islam and Muslim uh, minorities and Muslims generally of this notion of the Ummah. Um, so that's a notion of a sort of global community that supersedes the nation state and um, ethno-nationalist identification. So the whole of Muslim believers from Indonesia to Bosnia constitute one big um, peoples. And you can see that in the book, in that this notion of these shy, awkward people across borders, generations and nations. Um, and I felt intuitively no matter how removed you are from actual piety or practice, it's sort of almost a living fact. So I can meet like an Egyptian atheist and I'll still have something in common with him and a bond. Um, I can meet the most obnoxious uh, Iranian dissident and I can still have something in common with them. I would meet people when I was in Yanvanaik who only spoke French and were from Algerian backgrounds and we'd feel this deep like bond that had been shaped. And... I also find it interesting coming to Barcelona and um, I looked at some of the um, vocabulary of the uh, Latin American um, anti-colonial revolt. So if you look at 
um, Jose Marti, I'm sure I'm saying his name wrong, the, the Cuban anti-colonial leader, he's saying uh, references to Moors. He's saying, we are the Moors. And then you see this uh, correspondence between the expulsion of the Moors in 1492 and uh, Latin American um, independence movements. And then it's also interesting, coming to this area where I'm living in uh, Barcelona, uh, Rumba Raval, I'm sure I'm saying it wrong again. Uh, you see this generation of like Pakistani, Bangladeshi migrants coming here and you see this area of Barcelona around the Modern Art Museum, which is a bit like Brick Lane in London, a legendary migrant street, a bit like Edgware Road, uh, um, the Arab area of um, London, a bit like Vedin and New Corland, the, the the Arab districts in um, Berlin, and a bit like Tutin, where I born and grew up. And they're bringing this vocabulary of like Andalusia and Alhamra and uh, in t- back into the convenience stores and the grocery stores and the kebab shops. And that, again, I find that quite interesting too. <laughs> There were two references to Moorish Spain in the project I did at Documenta. There was a fried chicken chain called a Moors, a mmm, which is like saying yummy. Uh, that was established in 1492. Um, Moorish fried chicken. And there was also Cordoba fried chicken. I noticed when I ate a halal fried chicken this morning, which is around the corner from my flat, um, there's a... Um, when I looked at the receipt of the halal fried chicken, the, the guy had named his company Cordoba Foods. So I found that interesting too. Um, yeah, I, I don't, it's all very, like, I, I actually felt very nervous speaking about the Moorish Spain within Spain because I imagine they have a more textured, nuanced idea of what this is about. So... I so I speak to Spanish people and Spanish friends. I'm like, how, what did you learn at school in history? And a lot of them told me they learned about Moorish Spain and that it made um, innovations in architecture and engineering and that's a standard part of the school curriculum, whereas it isn't in Britain. The only reason I know about Moorish Spain is because when I was an art student at Central St. Martins, I found an old 1980s documentary by Tariq Ali. Um, he's a... Pakistani atheist leftist. Um, that's where I first learned about Moorish Spain in my like twenties. T- like, and there were a lot of events that were slightly might be seen as idealized. So you have this book called Sea of Sea of Faith, which almost presents it as a sort of you know multicultural cosmopolitan. But I, I'm sure things. I know there's a counter narrative that there were uh, different uh, law systems. Um, and then it still resonates today with like um, uh, I don't know, like who preserved Greek and Roman heritage would have been more. I don't know. So it's still a, to me the whole the whole notion of Moorish Spain is still like as live and present and as contemporary as as one gets. Um, I also think there's something within the language of intersectionality and discrimination and accessibility which doesn't acknowledge the place of like anti-piety within the notion of um, discrimination. 
Um, and I, I think that at the highest level, so I don't think the European Court of Human Rights acknowledges that. Um, so, um, and I view the sort of crossover with like anti-introversion. So it's interesting that in Tate Modern, the room that is called the quiet room, which is there for neurodivergence, uh, excess uh, sensory overload, is also used as a multi-faith room. So people can go there to pray too. And then I find it interesting that there's no institutional um, guidelines for that type of inclusivity. So you have a big museum in, in Britain, like the Victorian Albert Museum, which has the largest collection of Islamic carpets and tiles and stuff, but it doesn't have a similar openly accessible visible room. You have to go to the Science Museum next door. So I find that interesting. My my own relationship with religion is actually far more complicated and nuanced because I used to be an atheist from the age of 13 to my mid-20s. And... Um, I, I left atheism. I lost faith in atheism. I, I relate m many ex-atheists, like in Britain, you have C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and I sort of saw the system of atheism and rationalism and enlightenment tied up with uh, colonialism, um, white domination, um, and that entire mode of like instrumentalized rationalism. That's a more complicated conversation. There's There's wonderful poetry collection by Kay Miller called The Cartographer Maps uh, versus, I think, the Zion. And it's a conversation between a Rastaman and like an Enlightenment like mapper. And you see in the whole notion of that, the idea that the world is measurable or calculable or is tied up with forms of like um, colonial um, oppression. Um, uh, then yeah, I li when I lived in the Netherlands, um, I the, 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 <laughs> um, I lived in Gert Wilders' um, home base in Limburg, so I had pictures of Gert Wilders' face all around my flat, who's virulently anti-Muslim, and it was in that context that I actually became more Muslim. <laughs> um, and but I I still don't have a stable. Um, religious identity um but i i sort of relate to um within the book and in the film so part of it's shot in a quaker house a so quakerism is a branch of um most dissident christianity where as a form of worship they sit together in silence so i used to go to quaker houses a lot and i used to feel quite at home there and i also really like cathedrals like the catholic church may have its history of uh crimes and lack of accountability but the actual form of solemnly sitting in a cathedral in the middle of a busy city is just priceless in leicester square which is the most busy part of london there's a cathedral you can just anyone can walk in and sit in and just sit in silence just like and there isn't enough accessible space like that like it's so impossible to find a space you can just sit in quiet in in a city and no one protects that as a form of right there's libraries, but libraries close uh, office hours and stuff. And in fact, a lot of libraries are very noisy these days. So this idea of having protected silence. And you can take that narration and look at it in a neoliberal way. So you can say that, oh, because the state rollback and public infrastructure rollback, we, we're going to close down libraries and museums 
public parks, forests. That's one way of looking at it. And then you see it's also tied up with um, this notion of us as a peoples being negated. So people who want quiet and reflection and contemplation uh, and people attuned to that form of neurotribal or, or, or sensory um, grouping are also, their rights aren't respected, their heritage isn't respected, their they're almost their extinction as a people is not treated as good. But I think if you did liberate and give equality to the introvert, quiet, neurodivergent class, you'd liberate everyone because everyone wants rest and contemplation and quiet and slow down. And so that's why we can become the vanguard resistance movement for liberation for humanity. The practice of inventing my own critical vocabulary that was playful and slang-based has its roots in my earlier art collective, Other Asias. And we invented uh, critical languages such as bureautics, like a amalgamation of bureaucracy and erotics, or developmentia, which is an amalgamation between development and dementia to, to describe the... In, NGO structure or um, development models, which are actually oppressive. And th then uh, as that collective disbanded, um, I uh, started writing Shy Radicals. Um, I developed a whole new other vocabulary. Um, so introfada, amalgamation of introvert and the intifada, which is actually the uh, name of the Italian translation of the book. Extrovert supremacy, shy rear law, um, extrovert normative, and you'll see it laced throughout the whole book. Um, so there's part of the sort of limitations of like institutionalized academic languages, uh, the deadness of much leftist publishing, which has become formulaic. It's the exact same person speaking at every single leftist book festival and every single um, literary festival. So there's like a literary festival class of speakers. Um, so like shaking up some of the deadness of, of these non-critical uh, languages and then the invention of these words can create forms of identification that others can have and that has precedence in history. So you have like the word harassment widely introduced into the vocabulary in the post-war era and then that can uh, empower people who um, are bullied. You have the word boycott uh, within the Irish anti-colonial struggle. Now people don't even associate that, first of all, with the anti-colonial struggle in Ireland. You use that for any justice movement um, from South Africa to Palestine. So I'm, that was the ambition with my vocabulary too. I also think the writing forms in Shy Radical is a uh, mocking and a queerness and a sort of unsettling of administrative language. So the first chapter is a draft constitution which is written as law is written, this dry administrative bureaucratic form, but I insert vocabularies in there. So I watch a lot of teen movies. So I watch Edward Scissorhands and Mean Girls and Winona Ryder movies, and I insert that into this vocabulary of the constitution. 
so notion of the popular girl or emos. <laughs> I don't know. There's there's a way of like um, excess of administration that presses off all, and that's why I got so deeply into like zine culture. I think even within arts funding and the sort of there's a lot of someone who's been long enough within an arts institution know there's a lot of bullshit, right? And that's through this whole language of one, the sort of grant application and uh, false evaluation and false accountability. And um, again, using that language of administration, uh, uh, excess, uh, like bureaucratic, um, yeah, managerial um, languages. And uh, yeah, um, so... I, I find, yeah, there's a certain consciousness that comes from um, zine culture and um, independent publishing, which um, can bring us cr closer to uh, the lifeblood of things. There's now seven European governments which pay for me to just travel and eat fried chicken. the taxpayers of Germany paid for me to fly to Berlin and eat fried chicken in the Arab districts of Berlin. And that journey keeps going from, like, Belgium to Spain. Uh, I'm also trying to uh, get the British government to find me to go to Indonesia to eat fried chicken. There's a Croatian artist, uh, Malden Stilonik, his art practice was just sleeping. I mean, how can you up that as a medium specificity to like just sleep and lay about? I mean, eating fried chicken is probably even more potent than just having a nap. I spent a lot of my life um, on welfare. In my early teens, I I had um, like manic psychotic episodes. I was diagnosed bipolar, I, I had a lot of depressive episodes. I spent a lot of my life on disability living allowance and uh, I've been hated as a person. People hate people who live on benefits, people who don't work, uh, people who are immobile. And uh, I don't know, I, I feel like fried chicken belongs to this culture and class. I am not a successful person. I meet the director of public programmes here and I actually studied with him in Royal College of Art, where I dropped out. Um, and uh, I have never had an institutional job in any of these places, or they keep inviting me. Um, so I don't have like either the income or economic status or class status of like a professional art person. I feel a sense of belonging and identification with welfare-dependent people, with mentally ill people who've never had a stable job, with, yeah, disabled people. I, I'm sometimes classified as disabled, depending which government is in power. I identify with, like, dropouts and unsuccessful people. Uh, even though I have a book that's been translated to multiple languages that is on Ivy League curriculums that... Um, is the best-selling book by Bookworks, which is a prestigious publisher. You, you earn very little money out of that. You earn, what, one pound a book? Uh, and you it's certainly nothing to live on. You don't, I didn't even get royalties on my first um, 
addition. So uh, despite doing, so I have this very lopsided bipolar life where I can inv be invited to the most prestigious universities in the world and the next day consider universal credit. I still live in a state of like poverty and abjectation. And my, my class of people in Britain, which is Bangladeshi Muslims, they are the lowest income. Uh, we're overrepresented in prison queues, uh, unemployment queues, homelessness. So when I see like the director of public programs here, he's probably on like a high salary and... I don't know. I, I we're not. The, I I relate more to the people who eat fried chicken at Ferda's fried chicken next door than I do to anyone in here. So I'm inside this system of art. Uh, I know everyone who may have won a Turner Prize. I worked for a gallery called Hollybush Gardens, where a lot of the Turner Prize winners come from, and I was like some intern. They paid me nothing or twenty five pounds a day, and so I'm inside this system. Uh, I, I just spoke at a festival in Brussels. I got paid nothing. Um, you know, the whole economy of art wage is is sort of absurd and ridiculous. A person 10 years after their degree uh, probably earns less than the average um, manual worker. Um, so who we are is a class. Uh, and most of us don't get representation from, I don't know, the Gizgonians or the White Cubes. But we often know the person who got represented by the Gasconian White who went to university with them at the, the neoliberal overpriced art university. I hope one day I'll get beyond that and I'll enter into like comfortable adulthood like, and start buying houses or whatever adults do these days. But I still very much relate to the abject underclass. Uh, one of my favourite people in the world is the artist Dolly Sen. Uh, and she describes herself as a professional madwoman. And she's just, uh, yeah, she just makes zines about um, being mad. <laughs> and uh, I, I relate to that class of people who just have never, like, entered into stable, like, economy or adulthood. And I realise how the whole system works. There's a few neoliberal universities, like Royal College of Art, which charge, like, tens of thousands of euros to be there, or um, goldsmiths, which attract... Uh, very rich people from East Asia and a tiny clique of people who just yesterday I went to this theatre and I met half of them again, like not even. And I realised, what is a contemporary art world but this small clique of people where everyone knows each other and went to the same elite institutions. And at a, a, a high level, you have in Britain, you have Oxbridge, everyone knows each other from back in the days and issues of editorial positions or... Um, positions in parliament or in the cabinet so that sort of clique structure replicates itself but I'm inside the, the structure enough to like resent everyone so I'm in bookworks I'm, I'm with Slavs and Tartars who have like millionaires backing them and uh, hedge funds and whatnot but I don't earn as much money as them as much as like I mean, they've been good to me. They they invited me to the Ljubljana Biennial where I got this grand prize, which was like the phoenix of the ashes moment for my art career. But I, yeah, I'm still, oh, I have a few hundred pounds in my bank account. Um, I, I worry uh, very much. Uh, and I, 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 I'm at the risk of um, a lot of state persecution, um, especially within Germany, which is a horrific place for Palestine solidarity. 
So the whole documentary experience was ultra traumatic, ultra terrifying. I got daily messages of people who wanted to kill me, deport me and burn my art every day. And no uh, political will from any of the institutions to, to, to address that. And now the entire institution document is in crisis because... And it's worse if you're from a Muslim minority and you're brown and you're... Um, I left Documenta um, in the state of fear for my life um, in mid-August. Uh, Build, which is a horrible uh, ultra-right-wing tabloid, uh, which Henrik Boyle called Naked Fascism, just did a hit piece on me. And um, I, from that moment, I got 100 hate messages a day. Uh, people want to spit in my face, kick me, deport me. I have no faith in Germany and it's... Uh, ability to listen or learn from its mistakes or and the the trauma goes on and you see it just attack other people you had an afrofuturist curator who was just had his work pulled um my friend Mohammed Ud Saleh uh who you may know from the film The Mauritanian in the book Guantamino Diary he was uh banned uh for being curator of the African Literary Festival I see the horrible way they treat Greta Thunberg and notice it's the same journalists and media institutions. And then going deeper, like just it's just a standard way they treat the uh, Turkish and uh, Arab minority day in, day out. The horrible the way they treated uh, Ozil, the Turkish footballer who won them the World Cup. Um, uh, so I didn't think we as uh, documenter artists... Um, showed enough continuity because the horrible things that happened in Documenta 15 the violent attacks in the streets uh, on the Indian artists or the stalking of the Afro-Caribbean artists and the like anti-Muslim va vandalism on the central institutions so it was sort of like a continuation of what happened in Documenta 14 where you had this targeting uh, by the fascist party, the AFD, against Olu Agubi, the Nigerian artist who made this quite bland monument towards refugees, which has a line from the Bible, I was a stranger, I took you in, translated into four languages in the big plinth, which is in eyesight view of my um, fried chicken signs, uh, deliberately so. Um, but there was no continuity from Documenta 14 artists and... Uh, staff, the, the head of the Stuart Hall Library and Innova uh, was an anti-racist, anti-colonial institution. Sepeke, she worked at Documenta 14, experienced the same things, uh, sort of Nazi revivalism, um, that extreme media hostility. And there's no continuity into the next stage. And then in Documenta 15, everyone's left, gone home, got on with their own things. The people are still living there and... What responsibility do we have to the next edition? I mean, it feels quite helpless. I was documenting all the racist incidents that had occurred uh, against artists. There was a, um Indian artist called Sayan Manning, I think, and in Berlin he was um, violently uh, attacked and he had stitches all across his face. And there's a picture, a video of him in an ambulance after this attack in the streets. I mean, there's very little political will to, to um, represent the horrible things that happened to him. And although he received a lot of love and solidarity, so you see this continuation of the system against us, against others.
there was even a white English guy called Luke Hardin from a, a Oxbridge background. Uh, I think he worked as an accountant. He was um, sh- he was shot by a neo-Nazi who didn't like foreigners. So even like a white Oxbridge thing. I I, I think Germany is one of the most um, disturbing places in the world right now. And it invests a lot of money in soft power, especially in culture, like Goethe Institutes. Um, and everyone knows all the bad things that happened in the United States. They know the names of George Floyd. But does everyone know like the NSU murders? You know, this, this mass murder that took place uh, in the city of Kassel. You have um, a young Turkish uh, guy uh, who was murdered in his family's internet cafe. And the... the artists forensic architecture um doing artwork about it like like and and that that, that should be no so i've sort of um become i don't know i'd say a negative ambassador for germany i've had a, i had a very positive view of germany before i went there um or the sort of gloss around angela merkel being a fairly humane right-wing leader and uh since visiting there and this how traumatizing terrifying and horrible it the experience was just yeah i'm not uh, you know there's this there's this african proverb and it's like says until the lions have their own historian the story will be always that of the hunt so i feel like the narrative is still that of the hunter and not the hunted um but i'm doing everything i can um my next book radical chicken actually um will use some of the um hostility and hate and uh, xenophobia that I experienced in Germany and we all experienced uh, as part of the book. I also find it interesting that uh, Risa Fried Chicken, which is the legendary um, Arab fried chicken chain in Berlin, has been under severe violent police crackdown uh, during the current uh, genocide in Gaza. And, you know, you'd, you'd see police, like, stamping in front of candles, which people are just lit to commemorate the deaths and hospital bombings. And and the, the strangest thing that happened just this week was um, uh, some person had written a satirical sign that said, from the Risa, meaning the chicken shop, to the Spree, which is the river in Germany. And they were actually arrested by the police... This is a real thing happening. And um, I think there was some sort of police violence against um, their people around them. So you find in real life, this this notion of the chicken shop is actually becoming this place of intense racist police repression. I'm currently writing a book called Radical Chicken. Um, it takes its name after event that that was cancelled at Documenta. So I had two events in the public program in Documenta. The first one was called People's Chicken. Um, it was with uh, Ori Ashery, the uh, Israeli uh, artist that I'm actually very good friends with. I've worked for 14 years with, who occasionally collaborates with Larissa Sansor uh, on this project called Falafel Road. So Falafel Road, which... Uh, she ate all the falafel in London um, and I ate some uh, with her, uh, them, was uh, some sort of inspiration for the Halal Fried Chicken project and also included um, Andrea Shasti, an uh, Indonesian artist based in Kassel and documenter staff, Esther Pope, William Barrio, the um, 
influencer and academic uh, who writes on Muslim diasporas and, and the graphic designer Alauddin. So that was the first half. The second half um, was called Radical Chicken. This was actually cancelled and banned by a documenter. Um, that took place on the 11th of September. That featured um, Naveen Khan Dossos, a British artist that I work with. I actually work with Elvira, um, the director of the institution, and Naveen Khan on this event called um, Zines versus the State. So Naveen Khan Dossos, who did a showroom and writes on the prevent policy. The prevent policy is a form of a very intense uh, McCarthyite um, state surveillance program in the UK. So, you know, Muslim children speaking about uh, regions of the world uh, will be reported the state. So anything that uh, the public sector institutions, from education institutions to nursing to everything, um, is a form of state surveillance. And it's been it's a widely criticised um, state policy currently in place in, in the UK. And there's variations of it across Europe. Um, so she does artwork about that. So she was speaking at the event. She wrote me a lot of uh, very loving uh, solidarity message. Um, Mika Peled, who's um, a son of an Israeli general and is a he's a, he's a memoirist and uh, activist and journalist. He was speaking at this event. Um, Hassan Vada, who's a wonderful academic researcher based at Goldsmiths, and Tate, uh, who looks at religious. Um, discrimination and uh, Muslim presence in art, art museums and there were other speakers that I was going to get in, involved for this event too um, but in solidarity the um, the artists and the production team and the locals actually did two of the events uh, which were cancelled uh, that day so they had a big fried chicken feast in the Good Skull Kitchen which was a kitchen made by the Indonesian collective at the back of the Friederike Museum. And so they did the event anyway. There were three events. There was a public fried chicken feast, which you'd done already, uh, which was banned and uh, cancelled. There was um, a screen of Shire Radicals, which had actually shown as a preview event in Project Artwork. So we showed, screened that. Um, but then, the, yeah, the Radical Chicken event never happened. But I sort of vowed to do this event anyway. Um, it also included the um, German academic researcher Jennifer Egelbert. She's um, she's a white convert to Islam, and she's very visibly Muslim. She has like a like hijab, and there were a lot of very frightening rallies outside of the exhibition venues by pro-Israel actors and pro-Israel politicians, where they'd threaten to shut us down. They'd often be all white as well. Uh, they weren't that big; maybe a hundred people. So I was, I was, and. These, after these rallies, they would photograph the staff members and the artists, and it was a very frightening sense of like surveillance. So I was very worried how they might treat her. Um, but we're still vowing to do this event re regardless at some point in time. But that's where the title actually comes from. So, yeah, my, my event at Documenta was cancelled because um, on my personal Facebook, I had shared a Guardian news story about the remilitarization of Germany, which I object to as an anti-war activist and someone socialist leading. I think all that 400 billion should be spent on hospitals and schools and public services, not war or war glory or endless war. Um, so I objected to that. 
uh, I, I, I call the Chancellor of Germany a neoliberal fascist pig. And uh, I, I don't think much of it because I was living in London, England. I just read in the news late at night. And then I just became famous overnight in Germany. And there'll be headlines saying the man who called the, the Chancellor a pig. Like, so I became famous in Germany for calling the Chancellor a pig overnight. And all the, the, the right-wing tabloids and the centrist newspapers had headlines on me. And there were like 150 Reddit threads. And I shared another news story um, from a British newspaper called The Daily Telegraph. Again, I was living in London, England, um, where Boris Johnson, who has just emerged from a corruption scandal around COVID, where he had parties at the time of COVID, and Olaf Scholz met. I was aware both of them are involved in corruption scandals at a very, very deep level. And I called them both pigs. Uh, and that was it. So these two comments on my personal Facebook whilst living in London, England, whilst not even working at Documenta, was used as a basis to ban me, issue horrible like statements about me, um, and criminalise me. So those two comments are charged as sedition within Germany, I'm due in court on the 8th of January, which is very... When I tell people in Britain about it, they just burst out laughing. Like, in, in Britain, we have, like... During the 2015 general election, for example, we had a, like, pig farmer who did all the election candidates as pigs. We have, like, the leading uh, comedian, Stuart Lee. He did a whole comedy sketch saying uh, the deputy prime minister was a pig. We have songs like Black Sabbath's War Pigs, we have memes uh, using George Orwell's vocabulary from Animal Farm. You know, could they tell whether they were man or pig or pig or man? Uh, about the right and left emerging as if they're the same. So it's so entrenched within British culture to use the pig metaphor. But even in Germany, you have George Groys paintings, which hysterically showed corruption and political authoritarianism as pigs. And the entire black American um, tradition of resistance was references to the pig, the police who unaccountably shot innocent black men and women and children were always referred to as pigs. Fred Hampton, the assassinated Black Panther leader, would say, I'm with the people, not the pig. Like, it's just, even within the documenta exhibition, there were lots of pigs. How can you criminalise that? How can you criminalise the artwork of Emery Douglas showing Nixon or Trump as a pig? Like, I just... So that's that's where I'm at. Like, so I have to defend myself in court about my right to call a pig. And there was a there was another politician from the FDP party who are a very minor neoliberal party, but are always in the government coalitions uh, called Stefan Nass. He had um, in these rallies outside the documenta venues. He used to like be the lead speaker and he's to be very anti-BDS. A lot of artists support the BDS movement, the boycott, divestment, sanctions, which is modelled on the um, movement against apartheid in South Africa. Um, so that's that's the um, the whole of the German parliamentary consensus is against that. Um, um, so, yeah, he didn't like my public support of BDS and uh, he, he posted three times on the day of my public event, People's Chicken, and it unleashed a wave of hatred. I'd get a lot of horrible uh, Islamophobic cartoons uh, thrown at me. And a lot of people using um, disturbing far-right imagery like Crusader Knights. I was scared. 
so I had a very real fear of being attacked. So when um, party office, the Indian art collector, were attacked in the streets, I was scared I would be next. I shared an exhibition venue with them. Um, my exhibition venue was vandalized before the exhibition opened with a Spanish neo-Nazi leader's name, Isabel Peralta, graffitied all over the venue. Uh, and you can still see her name behind the uh, fried chicken signs uh, in the venue. And that's before anything had even opened or started. Even before the exhibition opened and started, there were uh, anti-Muslim figure uh, stickers um, defaced in the central venue saying, fight Islam, fight Muslims. And still there's no vocabulary uh, or um, news media on the main form of racism at Documenta, which was Islamophobia. If I type Islamophobia Documenta, I'll get two million news stories about anti-Semitism. And it was blatantly and as openly said as that. Uh, Frank Robb from the AFD party, the fascist party, which is surging in popularity, is the second most popular party, and did very well at the local elections. He said very openly in the federal parliament, I don't like Documenta because there's too many people with Muslim names. He said it as openly as that. And there's no liberal arts media who gives a toss. There's no... Uh, political discourse. There's, there's no one. It's, it's almost like, you know, and, and he did very well in the election. One of the Delinka um, federal uh, parliamentarians, Elizabeth Kula, spoke out against his demagogy. She's been, just been elected out of the German parliament. So, what, what hope do you have? Um, at the end of a hundred days of death threats, violent threats, racist abuse, fear of uh, stalking fear of being vandalized the only person who gets criminalized at the end of that is me for a facebook comment written in another country and a handful of tweets because i re replied back to this uh politician the fdb party also um spearheaded the campaign against the chile Membe, the one of the world's greatest uh, black philosophers i mean he teaches freely in trump's america right but he attempt to ban him from Germany. We should give you a perspective of how bad the situation is in Germany. I feel safer in Trump's America than I did in Germany. That's a not a statement I say lightly. Um, everything you say and write is is monitored. If you just say the word Palestine, the sort of Stasi and Nazi elements of the state and the nation almost rise back up to the surface and the language being used like the there was this notion that germans need chemotherapy being said by the um cdu member chemotherapy to deal with migration as if the migrants are cancer like this is the language being used there's language of mass deportation used by the chancellor of germany which is the language you associate with the far right, right? I, there's the, the, the whole German centre is not the centre. As part of the practice of Radical Chicken, we also do a reading group called Critical Chicken. Um, we read texts that look at the history of fried chicken uh, one of the key texts would be Soul Food, which looks at the history of Afro-American uh, oppression through slavery and transportation and dispossession and the attachment to the food of fried chicken. The fried chicken comes through the transatlantic slave trade 
Uh, it's essentially slave uh, food that has survived across uh, generations. You also find fried chicken as a reference in like hip hop culture. You have Nas, Busta Rhymes, Ice T, all write songs about fried chicken. And it's interesting because it's also the staple of the Muslim minorities within urban centres, whether in London, Brussels, you can go to areas like Molenbeek, uh, you can go to Berlin and the areas of Vedin. Uh, this whole demographic, it's almost like a code word. Um, in Britain, you often get right-wing conservative politicians and the way they try and prove themselves as being with the streets, with the people, is they go and eat fried chicken. So you have this very imperialist politician called Rory Stewart who ran for London mayor and he makes films of him eating chicken and chips. There's also um, fried chicken internationally because uh, it's almost uh, been appropriated by uh, East Asian economies too. So as I became closer friends with Ran Grupa, the Indonesian collective, we talked a lot about ayang goreng, which is the Indonesian fried chicken, which is currently my favourite of all the fried chickens, and its place within uh, the whole economy. And then you have the Korean fried chicken, which is the sort of South Korean uh, version, and Taiwanese fried chicken. Taiwanese fried chicken is also interesting. Um, my favourite shop in the whole of London called Monga, it has whole epic legends on the wall and like gods and handcuffs and spears around this fried chicken shop called Monga. And I it sort of opened up this trajectory in my mind even further as so the sort of possibility of what fried chicken can be. Uh, Morley's Fried Chicken, which is a uh, South London chain opened by Sri Lankan immigrants, uh, that's also quite legendary. The The... the chicken chain I made up called Moors. Moors is actually a pun on uh, Morley's, which South Londoners will get, and uses some of the same graphic language. Uh, they've started uh, sponsoring the arts. So there was a theatre monologue piece called Chicken Burger and Chips about British Afro-diaspora life in London, and uh, it was funded by Morley's Fried Chicken. Um in every uh, art capital, you notice this exact same pattern, which is you get a hipster economy with their vintage clothes stores, vinyl record shops, art book stores, next to the like, halal butcher and the fried chicken and the kebab shop. Whether you're in Queens in New York and you go to MoMA and PS1, whether you're in Berlin, whether you're just here in Barcelona, you walk down the road, you'll see um, the vintage clothes store and then you just turn your eye the other way and then there's the uh, halal fried chicken chain or the butcher or the grocery. And you also notice that in Documenta. In Documenta, the, the entire street from the main headquarters is this thing where you see uh, the Turkish barber, the mobile phone shop and the kebab shop and they just repeat themselves ad infinitum to the end of the street. Um, so I, I noticed this pattern everywhere, and there was often a lack of integration from the art world people and the, and the hipster people towards actually um, 
this uh, migrant economy. It's interesting how it keeps what they call it the Bohemian Index or something like that. So you have like an area which has cheaper rents and the artists move in and then you have a migrant community. Um, so what I was trying to do with um, DIY cultures and some of the fried chicken shops is actually create uh, real representative integrative worlds where um, these two people would meet. You'd have this white academic curator who'll read Gayatri Spivak and Edward Said and Fred Moten and whatever, but they have to actually have no actual connection to the diasporic groups which live on their doorstep. And it's entrenched in lots of things systemically. It's entrenched in um, an excessively academic language. It's ex a star system, snobbishness. Um, so when I did the Halal Fried Chicken Shop in Documenta, I I built a fried chicken shop called Cordoba Fried Chicken in the central Documenta Halle. And there was a main restaurant cafeteria in the Documenta Halle, which sold like, I know, organic aubergines for like 30 euros uh, with fine wines. And I built the I built the Cordoba Fried Chicken right on top of it with the fried chicken shop. So they got annoyed because a lot of people kept asking for fried chicken at this restaurant. Um, but that, that was fried chicken as this critical object and this demographic, which is... Um, Uh, actually shunned and marginalized and the inability to convivially connect with it. I also thought and imagined there were all sorts of national pavilions in Venice Biennale, there were all sorts of innovations of the national pavilion model. So there was the Roma pavilion and there's also the diaspora pavilion. But I thought, what if you put a fried chicken pavilion in the heart of Venice Biennale? What type of demographic would be in that? Um, Actually, uh, one thing I do is anytime I go to a big arts festival, I, I, I remap that arts festival via the medium of fried chicken. So I went to uh, Venice Biennale and we searched high and low everywhere for fried chicken and we actually couldn't find it. And we just found some grilled wings uh, and we had to make do with that. And then you saw like, there's some connection between the rise of fascism and the lack of fried chicken. So the British Union of Fascists uh, headquarters in uh, Northern England has now been replaced 100 years later by a fried chicken and doner kebab and pizza shop. Also, the AFD, one of their key election pledges is to ban doner kebabs and pizza shops. So there's some link there between the lack of fried chicken and fascism. But also, when I went to Liverpool Biennial, again, they invited this very fabulous uh, South African uh, curator. There was, you know, the usual lot quoted the Audrey Lords and the, like, current canon. Uh, but then I remapped the whole of um, Liverpool Biennial through the fried chicken chains, like Crunchy Fried Chicken, uh, Louisiana Fried Chicken. And again, that was a different pattern. I also went to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which is the largest festival in the world of theatre and performing arts and has sound art and stuff like that. It brings a million people to the city. And I mapped the whole of Edinburgh Fringe Festival via fried chicken. Uh, there's a fried chicken that you can actually purchase uh, near the mosque. There's a place called Mosque Kitchen. It's like a kitchen next to the mosque. Uh, 
there's uh, there were also very interesting hipster innovations of fried chicken in Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So there was a actual fried chicken chain called Wing Theory. <laughs> and yeah, again, running with and and then you'd also see other fried chicken chains which use the language of like gangster, like gangster rap, like it had a Wu Tang Clang and Easy E, but it'd be run by like the most middle-class white hipster um and yes yeah, so i just reorientate yourself and use it as an algorithm you'll come across a sort of race and class dynamic that you won't see anywhere else also you will see like uh, an evolution or devolution or regression depending on your point of view of the fried chicken chain from the 1990s to the current day so there's a legendary uh, YouTuber in England called the Pengus Munch. He's a young black kid that reviews fried chicken shops all across England. Mainly, it's about centered on urban, like London life. He plays like grime and uh, music, trap, um, and all these um, black diaspora music, and and um, eats fried chicken and rates the chips and develops his language, but. If you watch all his videos I've done, so I've watched all 200 of his videos, you see early on he has the, the so-called boss man chicken shop, which has no pretense or class and is very, very cheap. Like for a couple of pounds or euros, you can get a whole chicken burger and chips. And then as the, the series evolves into the current day, you see these new chicken shops. You have these chicken shops called like chicken and sours. So they um, incorporate like... Uh, fine art drinking and chicken and you have a gentrification of the chicken shop so you can actually see like, with brioche buns and like uh, organic chicken and like and yes for like 20 pounds or 25 euros so you also see this um, dynamics of the economy you know like lots of things can change you know like Football in the 1980s and the Premier League now is an entirely different economy of transnational capital. And you can similarly just look at fried chicken and um, have your pulse on uh, the heart of capitalism too. Or the uh, congested heart of capitalism. I also think there are forms of fried chicken which aren't actually fried chicken. So the burek, uh, which is a type of uh, Turkish pastry from the Ottomans, which you'll find in all of the Balkans, to me is a type of fried chicken. I was quite addicted to burek uh, when I was in Ljubljana. And it's it's a sort of, the particular way it's uh, used within uh, Balkan culture, but there's there's also street stickers you see around Serbia and um, Croatia, which says uh, "Love Burak, fight fascism." Um, I think there's other other food types. I mean, in some ways, the doner kebab is a type of fried chicken. Um, Greg sausage roll, which is a sort of working class uh, chain, is also a type of fried chicken. Um, so. Yeah, fried chicken is in some ways an attitude and a um, 
You could have fried chicken without any fried chicken. It's a way of being with other people. And a way of relating to the world. And an attitude towards like life, your body, health and community. The Qutbah is a sermon that takes place in mosques on Friday in Jumma, which is the holy day. And the Imam who leads the prayer gives a sermon about one, the state of the world, and two, states of piety. So I started with a series of sermons on fried chicken, which you can access online. Uh, a number of these imams also have a degree of celebrity uh, as tele-evangelists or podcasters or YouTubers. So I invented a series of fictional podcasts, um, which you can um, all view online and you can still view. If you go to the Instagram at Chicken Contemporary, they're there in the link in bio. Um and they take on all forms. Um, so I was thinking of like gangster rap, where you have gangster rappers who have rivalries with each other, like Ice Cube and Easy uh, in their raps. And you also have that with imams, like they have rivalries and territory and power and followers. Um, at the most basic level, there's like, you know, Shia versus Sunni or Salafi versus uh, Sufi. Um, so more mystical forms of Islam and more classical forms of Islam. And they always like essentially bitch each other, but quote parts of the Quran and Hadith, um, and the Prophet, Sirah, his life, uh, to justify whatever. So you have um, theological justifications for having nuclear weapons in Pakistan. You also have theological justifications from the Iranian um theologians against nuclear weapons so why nuclear weapons will be um detrimental to humanity and again there's a rival with rivalry between saudi arabia and iran there's rivalry between uh different sunni sects different shia sects so i embodied that inside the theological positions on fried chicken i used to sit in my studio in south london and i also watch islam channel which is what i watch at home with my my mum sometimes and but then i was reviewing this islam channel content which is you know televangelist quran reading sister circles but as a performative art practice reframed in the white cube of my art studio and then i continued this and this process of sermons and this discourse around fried chicken will go on and on and on and on and um what i have in mind for the next series is a series um called Chicken Bones and uh, my dearest friends in documenta were uh, Safta Ahmed who's an Australian Indian Muslim background and Khan uh, who's his drummer in the band Yazin they're, they're a Muslim death metal band who does like an uh, academic um, thing about Muslim zombies so I had this idea of, so he plays the role of a Muslim zombie in his death metal band and he makes a zine called Muslim Zombies, um, which is a very academic treatise. And I had this idea of having undead imams. So one zombie imam coming back from the dead, he was pro-fried chicken, and one um, zombie imam who was like anti-fried chicken. Um, and there were other performers I had in mind. Um, there's Vera Chok, she's a Malaysian performance artist based in England and she has a she has a tattoo of a chicken bone on her arm which she showed me as I was doing this uh, f uh, 
fried chicken project and she said this chicken bone on her arm is a symbol of like um, survival so I wanted to like have um, her produce something too so so this idea of commission will just go on and on and on and on and on and some and and then go on and on without me even centralizing it Thank <laughs> you.